Welcome to Future Extraordinaire. I'm Amit Mira, President of Asia Pacific and Japan and Global Digital Cities with Dell Technologies. And I'm Daniel Margi, VP of Presales, also with Dell Technologies. We are optimists, we love technology, and we believe future is amazing. We are helping to uncover the opportunities and possibilities, the skill and talent that are needed, and the progress that we can drive with the technology, data, and the indomitable human spirit. And with industry leaders, subject matter experts, and influencers joining us as guests, we will deep dive into the latest, coolest technologies, discuss new realities, the impact on Asia Pacific region, and provide refreshing perspectives. We want a future that is full of hope, that is fair and just, a future that is extraordinary. Thanks for joining part two of our conversation with our guest, Yoke Delight, lead bioinformatics and genomics with ESR New Zealand. Let's get right back into our chat with Yoke. I actually saw you have uh, published some paper about, um, you know, software solutions for big biology. Yes. Um, interestingly, I mean, you, you, you know, two areas that, 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 uh, that I always think about is that today we have AI being built, but this point onwards, AI uses in chemistry to find new chemicals or materials or biology to do, uh, to understand this amazing biological systems we live inside one, you know? So, so tell us a little bit about what is this, this uh, software solutions for big biology is. Yep. Um, so yeah, that's a, it's a slightly different area where I, I have a large interest and that relates to the fact that I found computers fascinating is that with all of these um, data sets, especially genomics, um, the data sets are so large that you, you can't do it by hand. You need computer architecture uh, to, to do a lot of the number crunching and to uh, also automate a lot of that work because um, doing that by hand is just not feasible if you're dealing with thousands of samples uh, on a day. Um, so... One of the things that we explore in that particular paper that you reference is um, how can we start to get people ready to do that more efficiently? Because a lot of the software that is used in research um, has a lot of dependencies on other pieces of software, which also means that if we want to maintain that in a reproducible way for future generations or for um, validation research, that we have to maintain all those other tools that they depend upon. So what we talk about in that paper is what are the ways that we could change our mindset and um, in some ways go back to some of the good old Unix philosophy where there is one tool with one purpose um, and that uh, we restrict those dependencies to the bare minimum rather than just everything. Um, and also one of the things that we discuss is um, the con containers. So how do we package a piece of software so that we can bring it somewhere uh, that people don't have to spend hours trying to install it? Um, an analogy that I'd like to make is that if I buy a new television and I want to watch a certain show on it, I want to plug it in, I want to push a button, and I want to watch that show. I don't want to have to go through five different manufacturers' manuals to 
configure certain bits and pieces. If you look at a lot of the software used in biology to get that up and running, to set that up, that is the type of work that has to be gone through. There's multiple different dependencies that you then have to read their own manuals to get them configured, um, which is um, not a very good way to go about it. And especially if you want to have that future-proofing, um, that's not the way to do it. Sounds like you're trying to create a uh, software-as-a-service sort of approach to sequencing, or the, or or the way I pictured it is almost like the App Store-style approach for scientists to gain access to software packages to uh, allow them to gain access to IP to insert their data and use it. And it, and it leads me to another question, which is... Um, how are you thinking about, you know, reaching this sort of, uh, you know, intelligence and outputs that the sequencing techniques can bring to patients around the world? Uh, today, many people go to a central location to, uh, to, you know, sequence the data and get an output, but patients are distributed everywhere. So do you see a future of change around how sequencing is going to take place um, in years to come? Yeah, Danny, that's an excellent point and, and something that I'm quite um, adamant about that we should change the way that we do that. Um, one of my favorite examples is the, the Arctic Consortium, which has been doing some excellent work in uh, South America and Africa, where rather than take the approach of give us your samples and we'll sequence them for them, they took the sequencing equipment to those communities that were having Ebola and Zika outbreaks and right there with them started doing those sequence analysis and interpreting that data and providing health intelligence right there, boots on the ground, making it happen. Those communities with which they did that, they are now themselves sequencing the coronavirus and, and understanding how it's spreading within their communities. So it is absolutely beautiful for me to see those communities to be empowered to do some of those things themselves close to where things are happening. Because especially when you're dealing with viruses or infectious diseases, that is where you can have the largest impact. I think that technologies have now evolved to a point where communities uh, and even rurally located communities can have this type of technology. It's it's not a million dollar investment anymore. It's, it's maybe a couple of thousand, but then you're up and running. Um, and there's all kinds of questions people can ask. Pathogens is one. Another one that I know that a lot of indigenous communities are also interested in is the species in those areas, the environment, how they interplay. Um, and I don't want us to take the old Western science model where people go in and get those samples and then take them out and do the research. I want those communities to be enabled to do that research themselves. Um, a great example is, is the kiwi species here in New Zealand um, that is endemic to New Zealand. So it only lives here. Some of the studies historically, they just went to the local zoo that happened to have a kiwi bird and did their analysis on that. Wouldn't it be much more powerful if you talk to the people that have been living with these animals for generations, that understand them, that are contributing to their preservation and their conservation, and 
enable them to ask those questions. And of course, um, as a researcher, you you need to get some sort of scientific recognition for that work, but you can do that together with those people. That's very exciting. Um, now, let me change the topic a little bit more towards a tissue-specific mutation accumulation in human adum- adum- adult stem cells. And I think you did something around liver on that as well. Um, tell us a little bit more about what, is, what does that mean and why this is useful and why should our um, audience care about that? Yeah, thanks. Um, so yeah, that was uh, when I was still back in the Netherlands and I was fortunate to work with a, an awesome group of people that were interested in cancer um, and specifically about how does a, a healthy cell, how does that become a cancer? Um, for smoking, um, we know that there's damage to the cells in the lungs that causes mutations, which cause those cells to become a cancer. But for some of the other organs, that is not as quite as clear cut. Um, so one of the questions that we asked in those studies is, if we look at healthy people and look at their cells and how they change over time, can we learn something about the fundamental processes that can cause mutations um, and um, how they might cause cancer or not? Um, so liver was one of them where we looked at and uh, the the small and large intestine or your bowels was another one where we looked at um, where we tried to determine um, if you're healthy, what does that look like? And then compare that to what we see in cancers. And what's interesting is that, especially for um, the large intestine, those things that happen normally as you age um, seem to be key events in becoming a cancer. Some of the earliest events that a cell undergoes in, in becoming a cancer. Um, so that's really interesting because that tells us that, um, yes, there are these environmental pressures like um, certain diets, but that there is also that large time component that as you age, the chance of getting that disease in that particular organ uh, will increase over time. So it's really where we're trying to disentangle um, sort of the things that happen in every person and is a matter of chance. And those things that a person has some ability to change, like their diet um, and how that influences cancer. Well, <laughs> I'm telling you now, as I get older, it's something that everybody always thinks about. So, uh, you know, you, you, we're, we're all worried and thinking about our health and fitness. So it's, a, it's always good to see these sorts of studies are being dug into a lot deeper than how we might think about it every day. So this is a, a second, uh, another segment that we have of our show called This Time in BizTech. And I uh, want to kind of take you back to October 1st, 1990. There was a genesis of a project that was just developed that was called the Human Genome Project. And I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. But the idea of it was that it would be the, the development of the first DNA sequencing techniques that were started in the 1970s by Fred Sanger and his colleagues. And it really, this, this t- point in time, though, was a significant, significant catalyst for really scientists starting to think about sequencing 
and the human genome. And the idea was, is that we had to apply this concept of big science. Um, And you mentioned uh, it earlier where the cost of uh, humans uh, looking at genome sequencing uh, was far more expensive than you can when you look at computational powers behind it. And therefore, not only um, would you get a quicker time to result, but there'd be a quicker time to, 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 uh, to value back to a patient. And so the scale of this seemed to get initiated around the Human Genome Project. So my question to you is, how familiar are you with the Human Genome Project? And in the 1990s, were you even thinking about it? Um, thank you, Danny. Um, I am I am quite familiar with the Human Genome Project. Um, this is mostly due to my studies and being the fact that I worked in human genomics for quite some time and and used that uh, product that they made in that project uh, on a daily basis to do my data analysis. Um, so I'm hugely appreciative of of what they were able to do there. Um, was I thinking about it? No, no. I was born in 1986, and um, I wasn't really thinking about those kind of things back then. Um, but I do think it's it's a very strong example of how if if you get a group of people to collaborate with um, sufficient amount of funding, even if it might seem pretty blue sky science to some people, that a couple of years down the line that has had a massive, massive impact on what we're able to do. Mm, I love it. So forward thinking. Um, at the time, they said it was going to take 15 years to uh, complete the project or complete the product. And they finished it in 13 years. And like you say, you've been a beneficiary of it and the entire uh, you know, biological and, and genome world, genome sequencing world has benefited from it. So I'm sure there's more to come in this space. So, so that kind of um, makes me think about this field. So, um, you know, how, is there enough understanding of this field? Um, do we need to communicate better? Um, you know, is there a fear about the technology? How should we improve the understanding and acceptance and move forward of um, of genomics? Yeah, so I, mean, I was I was very happy to hear that your daughter, which is still fairly young, uh, was actually thinking about doing something in genomics. And I think that um, sort of with many of these things, the next generation is going to be living in such a different world than where even I, and being still fairly young in this field, where I grew up in, uh, because we've had yet another change in technology and, and what is, you can even start thinking about what is possible. And like um, certain companies um, like Google and Apple and those have have invested in schools to teach people about programming to be able to use computational methods and and, uh, capability to its maximum purpose, I think that we have a real obligation to also have similar efforts for genomics because there is a lot of um, misunderstanding uh, in some ways, um, there are these historic ties with eugenics where people wanted to use genomics types of things to to make racial selections. 
um, the field in itself um, is is very far removed from uh, from that kind of things these days. Uh, but it is that sort of aftertaste that some people have when they hear the word genomics. Um, so I do think that we really need to do better at, at explaining this to people and uh, and talking about this. Another area where where people um, are interested in genomics, but where there's very interesting theories out there, is is this genetic editing or CRISPR-Cas is is what it's often referred to. Um, where people now think that you can get a designer baby. Um, through these genetic technologies um, that that is theoretically somewhere in the far future may be possible but I think it's much more important that we have the conversations about um, what we want to do within a health and um, disease setting the things that we can do there and of course have that public debate and and have our thinking about the ethics around that but sometimes these conversations seem to be hijacked um, by people that, that want to take it to the extremes while there are incremental gains to be had along the way. Um, so yes, we definitely need to do better at, at, at outreach. And um, I hope that this podcast might be a small part in, in that larger effort. In, indeed. And, um, and, and now let me just put your dreaming cap on. So could you share with us, how's your future better with genomic technology? I mean, if you have to say 15 years from now, what would we see that we can't even imagine today? Or what would be a commonplace which is very difficult to do today? Yeah, so 15 years is a nice long time. So, and, and seeing how quickly the technology has moved, um, I think that there can be some pretty interesting uh, applications that you see. One of the things that I think will happen is that if you go to your local doctor with, I don't feel very well, and I have a runny nose, one of the things they will do is they will ask you to spit on a cup, and that will go into a small sequencer that is sitting there on their desk. Um, And it will tell you within an hour if you have a certain virus or bacteria or not. That is one thing that I think will will happen, and at least I'm pushing to make that happen because I think that will uh, really help in people not taking antibiotics for a virus, uh, which would be great for not creating superbugs uh, that then kill people in hospitals. Um, something else that I think will happen is that it will become the standard for cancers. We already see that in some places in the Netherlands and in the US, where everyone with a, a cancer um, will get that cancer sequenced so that they know what treatment is most suitable for that particular cancer. That will become the norm. Um, something else that I think will happen is drugs. If you are going to get a operation and you need to anesthesis or blood clotting or any types of drugs, um, that, that will be informed by your genome. And the last thing I think, and, and that's that's where I really hope that it will have an impact, is that people themselves will have access to this technology where they can ask their questions of biology or their surroundings that if they take a hike in the forest, they can take a sample from the floor and see which animals passed through there. 
to enrich their world and to enrich their knowledge about um, what is in their surrounding. Um, so that's really the sort of citizen science where I think that genomics is going to reach a place where it's going to be so commonplace that people can do that. That's excellent. Well, I mean, that's uh, that's a lot to be hopeful for, and and that's uh, certainly will will create a better society. And um, and I'm very excited about it. I hope uh, my daughter will ultimately choose this uh, this field and 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 be part of this journey as well. Now, um, I think I wanted to have um, you know Danny talk a little bit about how the social goals that we are trying to drive and how that will fit into. You know, we want to make the one billion lives better, and how, in his mind, this could fit in with with genomics and other technologies that are coming together. How do we help the people at the bottom of the pyramid? And 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 Danny, you have some thoughts on it before you you potentially ask a question to uh, you. Yeah, no, I think I think the the big things are is that where you see the future going with regards to. Um, you know, some of our impacting goals around sustainability, around uh, privacy of information, and also around how we're thinking about diversity. And you, you talked about some of the future use cases that you can envision around how, uh, you know, you're creating almost community scientists. And it, it goes with the themes around what we're trying to do around social impact. But one thing I'm curious about is when you start to expose that level of information, and in this world, data and information is knowledge and it's power, um, how are you thinking that, you know, the security and, and how to protect that information, uh, you know, so that it's put in the hands of good use is going to be thought about in the future? That's an excellent point. And um when, when I was working with human genomes, it's something that we had a lot of discussion about because um, on the one hand, you are there to provide a answer to people about their medical conditions. But on the other hand, you also know that other scientists might be able to learn from their genomes about other diseases that they themselves do not have. But just because of that, their genomes are informative about learning those other things. So it's really um, interesting to see how that field has been moving along, where it's really moving to an an almost individual per research project consent, where they're now thinking of technologies where maybe someone could have their genome on their phone. And every time someone wants access to it, they have to approve or disapprove that, right? To really put them in control over their own genomic data. Um, when it comes to other types like pathogens or environmental data, a direct personal model might not be the best, but you could have uh, groups of people that act as guardians or safekeepers of that, um, that make those decisions. And I think that um, with a lot of these things, um, Typically, the people that care the most, that want to make the decisions, they, they are the ones that are close to that. They're the people that live in that environment um, that are taking care of it on a daily basis by picking trash up. Um, so yes, there's a lot of thinking that we need to do. But I also think that there is this really 
good opportunity to to build trust where people are in control and if there's an entity they trust that wants to ask a specific question that they can then grant that um, access but that they then also hear about what comes out of that question asking that they can see the answer to that question that was asked so to create a lot more transparency and i think that um Estonia is is one of the countries where they've they've enabled some of that change, where they have basically a a national intranet safe network um, that connects health data with genomic data with people's lifestyles, where a person gets advice about um, their risks of disease and their reproductive planning and all those things that they can ask themselves about and they have full transparency of who else accessed pieces of their data and i think that these types of things like transparency accountability they will need to be integral to anything we do within genomics that's great what a great journey we have been on and uh thank you um you for uh, giving us uh, access to this wonderful world that is ahead of us and um, I think our belief in this program has been to create a better future. We need to leverage technology to transform lives, lives and make positive social impact and drive human progress. Now, with hope, optimism, and dreamers and doers like Yop, we, will, we need to use science for good, upholding the highest level of ethics, and we can look forward to a future that is extraordinary. I want to thank you for joining us on this exciting session today, and I look forward to seeing you again in the next future sessions as well. Thank you, and have a wonderful day. Thanks for joining us on Future Extraordinaire. With the community that we are reaching, we hope that together we will build a future that is extraordinary. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends about us. And please stay tuned for our next episode. And please don't forget to subscribe to our channel. And rate our show. Give us feedback. Let us know how we're going. We always welcome new guests.